0: Conspiracy Show with Richard Seren. Hey friends, good to have you aboard once again. And uh, again, a, um, I'm very proud to uh, welcome two new affiliates to The Conspiracy Show, WTSL AM 1400, WTSL AM 1400, Hanover, New Hampshire, and WTSV AM 1230, Claremont, New Hampshire. Uh Listen, very busy show. Bottom of the hour, though, 1230 in about a half an hour's time. Well, you know, to my affiliates, 1230 means nothing. In about a half hour, we're going to open up the phone lines and do open lines for the last half of the show. Right now, though, you know, since ancient times, uh, we have long suspected that uh, we're not the only residents of the planet. And sliding in and out of visibility are races of beings who live in nature, the elements, and underground. Some call them fairies. And uh, my next guest is going to explain how we can see fairies. Rosemary Ellen Giley, one of the leading experts of the paranormal, uh, the author of over 50 books, and she joins us the second Sunday of every month. Rosemary Ellen Giley, how are you?
1: Doing well, Richard. Uh, weathering out a storm here, but I think we're going to be okay
0: uh you know it's been a, a while since we've talked about uh, f- uh, fairies and everything that i remember as a kid sort of learning about fairies or reading about fairies really came from uh the united kingdom ireland scotland but is that the is that where the origin lies in in the united kingdom or does it even predate that
1: are everywhere around the planet. Uh, every culture has a mythology about the little people or the invisible people, the people who preceded human beings. What we know here uh, in Western culture, most of that does come from the Celtic countries because fairy lore developed very strongly in the UK, in northern France, in Ireland and Scotland. Uh, and a lot of that got um, imported into America when people immigrated.
0: And, of course, from Victorian times, we had uh, those pictures, re- reportedly, uh, uh, of fairies captured on film. What do you, what do you make of those, <clears throat> those photographs? I mean, is it possible to capture a fairy on, on uh, photographic film?
1: It is possible. In fact, I have some photographs and even some video of fairies that uh, I'm convinced is the real thing. They are, however, exceptionally difficult to photograph, just like ghosts and apparitions and other kinds of entities that we run into. But back in, in those Victorian times, actually, was around the turn of the 20th century there was a major scandal involving hoaxed fairy photographs. And the photographs, amazingly, were put together by two kids, a 17-year-old and and a 9-year-old. And uh, they fooled a lot of experts, including the eminent Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who created the Sherlock Holmes stories. He was totally taken in by the the photographs. And when they were exposed as a hoax, uh, he was quite humiliated.
0: But if we go back in time, we were talking about England, and I I know that sometime around the 12th century, uh, in a place called Woolpit, Suffolk, there was a fairly famous incident uh, of an encounter with, with, I think, two fairy children that were caught in a wolf trap or something. What is that story, and how credible is it?
1: I think it's very credible. In fact, there are similar stories like that. There, there are so many in folklore that are really hard to explain away. But that story from Woolpit in England involved two children whose skin was actually green. And they were found by villagers trapped in a wolf pit, which was designed to keep wolves from attacking the livestock. And um, the children were taken to the local night, and uh, they were very upset and hungry. And eventually, when they could talk... They said that they came from a land of perpetual twilight, and they'd gotten lost. One day they had uh, heard the sound of bells. Uh, They encountered a cavern, and they followed the sound of the bells uh, through this cavern and emerged out into this world of intense sunlight. In fact, the the sunlight was so bright that it knocked them senseless. And uh, that's when they were found by the villagers. So... This fit what people believe to be the world of fairy, which which is this underground uh, land, sort of an we will call it another dimension, which is lit by perpetual twilight. It's the sun is just never very bright, and it never gets completely dark. Well, the two children. Um, no one knew how to send them back so they were pretty much stuck on on our side and the boy got sick and he died but uh, the girl survived and she eventually became a servant of the night uh, very interesting story and we find similar stories in fairy tales and folklore also about human beings uh... also traveling to fairyland so it seems to be a two-way doorway
0: when when I think of fairies, I think of fate. Because, in fact, I think fairies. Fair, the word fairy derives from the Latin, uh, meaning fate. So, what is the connection between fairies and and human fate? What what is the connection?
1: The original connection had to do with enchantment, and uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, yes, the, the word fairy comes from fata or fate, uh, a reference to the three fates of classical mythology, three women who spin the threads and the yarns of time and weave the destiny of people. And uh, the relationship to that was um, the fact that fairies were often associated, this skill was often associated with women who could enchant. And fairies also had the ability, they had the ability to enchant people, to cast glamour over them, to um, put them into sus- states of suspended animation. And so that's how these threads came together.
0: So if you get on the good side uh, of a fairy... Uh, then I guess fate will smile on you. But if you cross a fairy, uh, then what? You'll be cursed with with bad luck? Or how will that work?
1: Well, it is very tricky to deal with the fairies. And in fact, many of our ancestors from uh, the Celtic lands were very leery of fairies and even frightened of fairies because of their powers. It seems that fairies run in all stripes like human beings. There are good fairies and fairies that are helpful to people. There are tricky fairies and mischievous uh, fairies, And then there are fairies that really don't care for human beings at all because they feel that they lost their place on the planet to us. The reason why they had to retreat into these otherworldly areas was because human beings spread around the planet and dominated it. So uh, the fairies do have a reputation for being uh, very vengeful. And if you, if you show disrespect or you inadvertently harm fairies or if they have any reason at all to take a dislike to you, they can use their supernatural powers against you. Those who are helpful can use those powers to help people.
0: Paranormal investigator, researcher, best-selling author Rosemary Ellen Guiley here on The Conspiracy Show. We're talking fairies. Now, uh, so what are they? Are they some um, small um, human being, uh, like a primitive race of human beings? Are they angels? Are they more physical than spirit? What?
1: They're probably... There's probably no single explanation to account for all fairies. But most descriptions of them describe them as like small people. They don't look quite like humans. There's something a little different about them. Sometimes they've got some sort of a hybrid look to them, like they might have a part animal characteristics to them. But uh, they are small in stature, and uh, they're usually invisible. Now, other fairies are described as like balls of light, pillars of light. Some of them are described with wings. The Victorians were very fond of drawing fairies with wings, and that's where a lot of people today get their ideas from, that fairies are these little wing things like Tinkerbell, when in fact uh, they really run a gamut of shapes and sizes. I believe, uh, after examining a lot of mythologies and, and origin stories about fairies from different cultures around the world, that... Uh, they once existed in our physical reality. Uh, they are beings, and they're not completely physical like we are, but they uh, have the ability to shapeshift. They have uh, powers that we don't. And now they live primarily in their own dimension, but it is still attached to the earth. Uh, the Christians, uh, in when the, the Christianization took over uh, pagan uh, mythology and folklore, Uh, A lot of gods and goddesses and nature spirits were demonized, and so fairies were uh, associated with witchcraft. They were said to be the the souls of the unbaptized dead who had to exist in a limbo, and uh, or they were fallen angels. And uh, I think that these are largely demonization kinds of explanations uh, that really don't accurately describe fairies.
0: Yeah, they've also been described, uh, as you point out in your book, uh, as the souls of the pagan dead, which again would, would tend to suggest that they are more spirit than, than physical. Um, now, you um, have written extensively about, you know, and, and you, I believe you lecture on this too, about how, to, how someone can actually see a fairy, because the interesting thing about fairies is they'll only become visible if they wish to be seen. Now, how does that work?
1: That folklore is very strong around the world, that fairies have the ability to be seen. And most of the time, according to lore, they really don't want to be seen. And most of them don't want to have a whole lot of interaction with people. Uh, and there are stories from the lore where people have accidentally stumbled upon fairies out in nature world, and they're working or enjoying themselves. And if the fairies notice <clears throat> that they've been seen, some, sometimes they get angry. And there are stories of people having been struck blind in retaliation. But if they choose, they can make themselves visible to people. And if they take a shine to people, if they like people, uh, then, uh, then they manifest. They're very interested in children, and I think this is one reason why children have so many fairy experiences. And I had them, too, when I was a kid. You know, they're usually like the invisible playmates. That uh, you can see when you're a kid and you feel that they're very real, but no one else does, especially adults. And I've collected stories of, um, uh, from parents who, uh, whose children talk about their invisible playmates even coming into the house, keeping them company at night. Uh, and as they get older, then um, this gradually goes away. And it's all chalked up to imagination by adults, but I don't think it is.
0: What other purpose do they serve? I mean, what, what what are their what do they go about doing on a day-to-day basis? Do they attach themselves to certain homes? Do they attach themselves to certain objects in the home? Uh, do they see themselves as sort of a, the caretakers of the of the world?
1: Most of them seem to be found out in the world of nature, and uh, sometimes they're tending nature, taking care of it, or just frolicking and amusing themselves. They have areas. Uh, that are distinctly theirs. And uh, there are uh, beliefs in fairy mythologies around the world that um, fairies have their strongholds and the savvy person should know where they are and not trespass on them and definitely uh, not disturb them or cut the trees down or things like that. Uh, they do come into households. There are types of fairies that uh, like to be around people and they, they will live in a house and uh, according to law, even help out with chores i've had um,
2: uh,
1: I had a case of a, a fairy who lived in uh, a house that i was uh, once lived in in Maryland. He never helped out with anything but uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was there nonetheless. And uh, typical male I fairy, I'm
0: guessing, a typical male fairy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but they, they do like their offerings of food and they like sweet things. Uh, this is very strong in fairy lore. I do believe that uh, in you know, times change and uh, people's attitudes and relationships with the world change and whatnot. And I do believe that there are many fairies now who are very interested in having, uh, harmonious relationships with people. Uh, we have these wonderful gardens uh, around the world, like Findhorn and Greenhope, Paralandra, where people say that they are working very closely with the nature kingdom, including fairies, to enhance uh, natural growth.
0: Rosemary Ellen Guiley, my guest, paranormal investigator. She joins us the second Sunday of every month here on The Conspiracy Show. Her website is VisionaryLiving.com. Rosemary, we'll take a timeout. We'll come back and we'll talk to uh, talk to you about how, if people so desire, they can see a fairy. And we'll talk about some of your personal encounters with the fairy world. Stay with us.
3: The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes.
2: Loose lips sink ships. Sometimes, corporations. You're listening to The
0: Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us, paranormal investigator and the author of Fairies. Rosemary, when did that book come out?
1: That came out in 2010. And uh, it's my second book on fairies. It's an introduction to fairies and what their origins are, how their um, activities uh, are, are done in the world, and uh, also how people can encounter fairies, communicate with fairies, and see fairies. There's a tremendous interest in um, making contact with the fairy realm. Fairies have fascinated us.
0: So what is the best way to, to, if you want to catch a glimpse of a fairy? How do you do that?
1: You can actually cultivate fairy sight. The best times to see them are outdoors at dusk and at dawn. And uh, what, what you can do is you can go outside anywhere, to your own backyard or out in the neighborhood or to a park, and sit quietly and meditate a bit and, and ask for the fairies that are around you to make themselves known to you. And people experience them in different ways. They may actually see fairies. They may have an impression of fairies on the inner eye, have a mental picture. They may hear something, uh, an inner voice. Uh, or sometimes just sense of presence, or it might be a combination of all of those things. And it's a good idea to to be respectful, to, uh, to say that, uh, you know, you're interested in uh, learning about fairies and knowing more about them and you would like to experience them. Uh, sometimes it might take a little while. Uh, you might have to do this repeatedly, but um, you can tune in
0: and do you have or yep. any psychic gifts required in order to perceive them
1: everybody has their own psychic and intuitive ability, and there are people who are more naturally gifted. They're going to have an easier time doing it, but uh, it's easy to cultivate, and one good way to enhance that ability is to use averted vision. You're more likely to see something out of the corner of your eye or off to the side rather than looking directly at it. It's sort sort of like looking through a telescope at a very faint object.
0: Now, so you you, um, you have to av- avert your eyes and hope that what you you're looking with your inner eye. That's the idea.
1: Uh, it's a combination of things. Uh, you avert your vision. That is um, a, g- a good way to do that is to uh, look ahead. Uh, but kind of have your eyes unfocused, that um, you're aware of what's going on on the side of your vision, but you're not turning your eyes to look to the side if something pops into view on the side. That's averted vision. And you might actually see something with, with your eyes. Uh, more likely, you're going to have a mental impression, and that's quite often how I perceive fairies. I see them clairvoyantly with the inner eye rather than, than with my eyes, but I have seen them both ways.
0: And uh, what's the best time of day? Is it uh, dusk, dawn?
1: My favorite time is dusk. Uh, Dawn is also good. Uh, If you're a morning person, that's a wonderful time uh, to try and tune into fairies. But dusk, uh, there's something about that changeover between sunlight and nighttime that uh, enhances uh, one's ability to see things that are normally invisible.
0: Well, tell me about the, the encounter with this, this fairy who looked like a small person. Where were you, and, and how did this come about?
1: Well, one of those encounters was in England. And uh, I was um, uh, doing some vacation, traveling over there with a friend of mine, and we went to the ruins of a Roman dream temple very near the, the Welsh border. We had the whole place to ourselves. It was lovely. I went, uh, it was a sunny day. Um, we were in a nature setting, and uh, just the two of us, and uh, I sat down by myself on a log to meditate for a while, and I was in front of a big oak tree, and I just wanted to tune into the space around me and uh, see if there were any presences who wanted to make themselves known. And suddenly I became aware that there was this, what appeared to be a small man, uh, who uh, it, it looked like he just rose up out of the ground by the roots of the tree. And uh, he looked like, uh, you know, a little fellow from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, you know, one of those uh, kinds of creatures, and had on trousers and a plaid shirt and a little cap. Uh, and uh, he stood there looking at me like he was curious about me, and, um, and I felt that he had allowed himself to be seen. Uh, so I mentally sent him a greeting, and he acknowledged that and popped back down into the ground.
0: Is that normally how they communicate telepathically? Uh,
1: I, I do believe it is, and most of my communication that I've had uh, with fairies has come that way. It's uh, You can hear a voice uh, in your head, or you feel words impressed un- into your thoughts. Uh, it's um, not likely that you're actually going to hear a disembodied voice.
0: Uh, it sounds also as if the, uh, fairies, these entities, they, they like to be appreciated. How do, you, how do you show appreciation after you've been allowed, I guess, to see a fairy?
1: Fairies love gifts, and it can be something very simple. It could be a flower, for example, left in a spot where you had an encounter with a fairy. Fairies in the home like little gifts of food. In fact, in folklore, uh, there are a lot of beliefs in various cultures about leaving food for the fairies. And if you're preparing food and anything accidentally falls on the floor, it's automatically the fairies. And uh, nobody is supposed to eat it. Do fairies actually take the food away? Well, probably not. I've never had that happen or encountered any stories like that. But they take the essence of it. And so it is said in folklore that once you have left something for the fairies and they've made their meal out of it, uh, the food is not to be eaten by uh, humans or animals uh, because the fairies have taken all the uh, nutritional value out of the food. Uh, they like sweet things. Uh, there are very strong um, beliefs that fairies get offended by money. And even though they like shiny things, don't leave them money because uh, they feel like they're being bought and um, uh, they will um, feel very insulted by that.
0: I don't know if I'm mixing up fairies with gremlins, but or maybe you know the, there's sort of the same underlying <clears throat> entity that explains both phenomena. But uh, you know, people often complain about something going on the fritz suddenly with no explanation, or they and they blame a gremlin, or something is missing. It was right there, you know, two minutes ago. I averted my gaze, and now it's gone. Uh, are fairies associated with, uh, I guess, throwing a monkey wrench into the into the machine, or, or with missing items?
1: They certainly are. Uh, They do do poltergeist things like um, some other kinds of entities, too. They will take objects and hide them, move them around. It's said in folklore that if you don't keep a clean house and you have uh, fairies living in the house, they'll get very upset by that. And instead of uh, cleaning things up, they will actually make things more chaotic and messy. So um, a lot of those things can be blamed on the fairies. And sometimes, you know, we might not even know exactly who might be responsible for those missing objects if we can't blame ourselves, if it's the fairies or some other kind of spirit. But um, a gremlin-like personality is very characteristic of a lot of them.
0: We were earlier talking about communication and how fairy communicates. Um, We also associate fairies with with music. Have you ever uh, uh, been privileged, I guess, to hear fairy music?
1: On one occasion, yes, I did. In fact, fairies are famous for music. And when people have accidentally come upon them in the world of nature, they're often singing and dancing at night, making merry. I was in Findhorn. Uh, a number of years ago, I went out for the summer solstice, and I wanted to see the gardens there that uh, people said uh, they had grown—you know—amazing produce with the help of the nature spirits, which would include fairies. I took a walk to the beach one day, all by myself, and um, it, it was a long trek. And you go through these very narrow pathways through thick um, uh, brush and um, you know very tall brambles and things like that. And I heard these pan pipes uh, behind me, but every time I turned around, uh, there was nobody there. And it it sounded like, um, you know, someone was following me playing the pipes. And I eventually came out on the beach, and no one came out behind me. Uh, and I was very puzzled by that. If, if someone had, um, you know, maybe been behind me and turned around. Well, when I related that to people at, at Findhorn, they said, oh yes, well you, you had an experience with Pan because that's what he does. If he likes you, he'll follow you somewhere and, uh, play the Pan pipes. And I distinctly heard them. Uh, it was not an inner hearing. It was something that I heard with my, uh, my normal ears.
0: No, and I think of Pan, I think of some sort of, uh, uh, like a wood nymph or, or something like that. Are they, so Pan is, would be considered part of the fairy realm?
1: There's a blurring of boundaries between uh, hybrid creatures and demigods and nature spirits and fairies. And sometimes it's impossible to say where one leaves off and the other starts. They all kind of get mixed together. But Pan is the uh, the lord of the woodlands and um, would have at least a relationship with fairies. Um, who live out in the natural world.
0: Is it possible for humans and fairies to um, uh, to reproduce? Uh, I mean, can they mate?
1: In lore, yes. And in fact, all around the globe, going back to ancient times, there are stories and traditions and beliefs about intermingling between humans and fairies. Um, the fairies have an intense interest in human beings, and and um, there are traditions for fairy wives, fairy husbands, and um, stories exist that um, the, the fairy spouse must be taken very good care of, uh, and as long as they're happy, all kinds of favors and bounty and blessings come to the humans, and if they become unhappy, then. They vanish, and all of their um, things that they have created for for the human spouse all vanish, too.
0: You know, we we, we were very much attuned to sort of the fairy world up until, I would say, uh, you know, the, again, the early, early 20th century, and, and we were talking about that earlier, uh, sort of the tail end of the Victorian era, uh, and then, you know, speed ahead 30, 40 years, and all of a sudden, uh, everyone was seeing little green men. Uh, and now today, uh, some people still claim to see, you know, the greys. Other people talk about shadow people. You and I have talked a number of times about shadow people. Do you think all of these entities are, I mean, there's one entity that can explain all of these phenomena?
1: There very uh, well might be, Richard. Uh, in fact, um, even going back into the 60s and 70s, ufologists, in collecting accounts of encounters with space beings, Uh, realized that they were very similar, if not in some cases identical, to accounts, uh, earlier accounts of encounters with fairies. Even the descriptions of them, very similar. And uh, William Butler Yeats, uh, back in around the turn of the century, uh, he, he was very interested in fairies and collected a lot of Irish fairy stories. He said that, Fairies take whatever form we can perceive them in, and that does seem to be the case in looking at our encounters with all kinds of entities, that um, we explain them and and even see them uh, according to what we can make sense out of. So is there, like, one being behind all of them? I think a good case can be made that the jinn are at least uh, responsible for some of our encounters, that they have taken uh, different forms throughout the ages uh, to conform to human uh, cultural expectations and beliefs and also what people can accommodate. Interestingly, ancient Arabian and Persian fairy lore is very intermingled with jinn lore, and they too are a supernatural race that preceded human beings on the planet who uh, now exist in uh, another dimension, but still attached to the earth.
0: Well, Rosemary, thanks for giving us the lowdown on fairies. Thank you for this.
1: Thank you very much, Richard.
0: Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com.
2: The world is being pulled over your
0: eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Hey, friends. So the last half hour of the program is pretty much all yours. It's you, me, and the telephones. We've got about 20 minutes uh, left in the program, and uh, we can discuss just about anything you'd like, as long, of course, as it falls sort of within the uh, the format of the program. And, and uh, we talk about conspiracies and geopolitics and the paranormal and UFOs and so forth. Now, let me just give you a heads up what's coming up next week on the program. This is a fellow I met out in, uh, in uh, Los Angeles uh, back in, um, I guess it was September, when I went out there filming episodes for the Conspiracy Show television program, season three, coming soon. Uh, Jim Diogenio, And uh, he's got a brand new book out called Destiny Betrayed. Just when you think you've heard or you know everything about the JFK assassination, along comes uh, this book, and it's just going to blow your mind. Uh, I hope you can get hold of it and read it, but uh, Jim will be on the program next week. Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. Uh, So I hope you'll be along for that one. I got some disturbing news. Earlier this week, Wednesday, in fact, I received an email from someone out on the West Coast who emailed me a link to a newspaper, called the Santa Barbara View. And when I opened up the link and read the story, I was shocked, stunned, really. There's a gentleman I had on the radio program back maybe February, March, just after he had published a new book. It was called Bamboozled, The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror. Phil Marshall, former airline, uh, commercial airline pilot, also, he said, flew for the CIA and the DEA during uh, Iran-Contra. Wrote a book about that as well. So I met him in September in California, in uh, in Santa Monica. And uh, we chatted about uh, the Big Bamboozle. Prior to that, I'd had him on the radio show. Had him on again. I'm sorry, I met him in August in Santa Monica. September 9th, two days before the 11th anniversary, I had him on the program again. And uh, then, subsequent to that, we emailed back and forth a few times. He wanted to know what's the status of the TV show because he was he was going to be or he's going to be in our episode on uh, 9/11 evidence for foreknowledge. And I said, well, we you know we we uh, we had some delays, but it's 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 on track. It's going to be it's going to be on in the fall, and we'll, we'll, you know that's all I can say right now. And he said, okay, well let's keep in touch. So then I get this email on Wednesday, an article in the Santa Barbara View, and here's what it said. Former airline pilot Phil Marshall spent a great deal of time around Santa Barbara last year preparing for the release of his controversial 9-11 conspiracy book, The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror. During the editing and pre-marketing process of Marshall's book, he expressed some degree of paranoia because the nonfiction work accused the George W. Bush administration of being in cahoots with the Saudi intelligence community and training the hijackers who died in the planes used in the attacks. Think about this, Marshall said last year in a written statement. The official version about some ghost, Osama bin Laden in some cave on the other side of the world, defeating our entire military establishment on U.S. soil is absolutely preposterous. Marshall went on to say the true reason the attack was successful is because of an inside military stand-down and a coordinated training uh, operation that prepared the hijackers to fly heavy commercial airliners. We have dozens of FBI documents to prove this flight training was conducted, uh, in California, Florida, Arizona, in the 18 months leading up to the attack. The veteran pilot confided that he was concerned about his 10-year independent 9-11 study. He, he echoed that same sentiment to me. And most recent book uh, was concerned about his most recent book since they pointed to the Saudis and the Bush intelligence community as the executioners of the attack that defeated all U.S. military defenses on September eleventh, two 2001. Marshall said he knew his book might cause some people to take issue with him. Then we find out that on February 6th, Phil Marshall and his two children were found dead in their home. Allegedly, Philip Marshall shot and killed both of his teenage children. They were asleep at the time, apparently. They were both shot in the head. He shot the family dog. And then he turned the weapon on himself. Phil Marshall, dead, of apparent murder, suicide. So having met Philip, having talked with him at length in Santa Monica, several hours, on this radio program two times, and uh, emailed back and forth a number of times, I can't say that I know the man or knew the man. But I have to tell you, it seems very strange. And at the risk of being accused of being a conspiracy theorist, which I suppose in some, to some extent I am, uh, I think there's something fishy here. What better way to discredit somebody... And getting rid of him at the same time uh, than to have him labeled as uh, a murderer. Of course, now he's not around to defend himself. I'm not sure if we'll ever get to the bottom of this, but uh, we'll talk more. And uh, take your calls after the break. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth!
2: Fasten your seatbelt and put your
0: tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back once again. 9-11 researcher Philip Marshall, who last appeared on this program on September 9, 2012. Dead. What authorities are calling a murder-suicide. He supposedly killed himself, a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. I I believe it was a 9 millimeter handgun, which, according to reports, he'd been showing to friends about a week ago. Prior to that, however, he allegedly shot and killed his two teenage children. A horrible, horrible, horrible tragedy. And again, having met Philip several times on the phone, on the radio program, meeting him in person, several emails back and forth since September. I can't say that I know him. I just I I I don't think it adds up. Of course you never know somebody really. Uh but he just never struck me as being in any way unstable or angry, although he did indicate, you know, he had some concerns about his his safety after writing this book, The Big Bamboozle, 9/11 and the war on terror in which he implicates Saudi um, intelligence and certain individuals inside the Bush administration for coordinating the 9-11 attacks. And, of course, some are saying, and, and I have to echo the sentiment, it's, it, it seems strange, and, and what better way to discredit somebody than, than to hang the uh, the uh, the label of murder on them, taking the lives of his own children, beautiful, beautiful children. Michaela was 14, Alex, her brother, 17, I've got a picture of them, uh, of them up on my uh, website at richardserrett.com. And uh, incidentally, next week, in the second hour of the show, I'm going to play the interview that I um, conducted with Phil Marshall on September 9th 2012, in its entirety. Hope you'll be along for that. All right, to the phones we go. And uh, Cecil is in upstate New York. Cecil, or Cecil, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you?
3: Uh I'm just fine. We like your program very much. I've got two things. One is in your searches through your Greek Orthodox heritage um about reincarnation. I would suggest taking a look at the works of Origen, uh who is one of the church fathers because he he wrote some things on the subject and this is before the the council that something like 325 AD that that sort of codified the uh, the theological views.
0: I appreciate that information uh, because Cecil, as you know, I've stated publicly on the program that uh, while I'm I'm certainly open to the experience, having witnessed a number of past life regressions, I, I can't reconcile that with my my faith uh, because sort of the official doctrine is that there you know reincarnation doesn't uh, it doesn't square with the faith Right,
3: but if if uh, one of the church fa- fathers uh, uh, took it seriously, then maybe. Uh, there's maybe it deserves a second look.
0: I appreciate that. Now, what's what was the the, the church father's name again? Can I get that again? Can, uh, Oridzen,
3: Origen. O r i g e n.
0: I'm going to look that up, Cecil. He Thank you for that. He was
3: writing in Greek at the time. All right. The question is, uh, I heard on on kind of a a, a radio teaser on an information saying essentially Canada had been set up as a corporation on uh, on the stock exchange.
0: Canada Inc. Is, or Canada, the country of Canada, is listed on the Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC, if you go on the website, and uh, right, I think, above uh, Canada Dry Limited, of course, the soft drink manufacturer, a Canadian company, uh, is Canada, the country, uh-huh. and they list the the corporate headquarters uh... being uh... it's on pennsylvania avenue where it's housed inside the canadian uh... embassy in washington they list the legal counsel and 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 so forth so that has led some to suggest that canada is in fact a corporation and not not a nation state if you will uh... huh. i mean and it's true i have looked it up uh... and i've yet to hear uh... an answer uh... as to why canada would be listed on the sec uh, I don't know. Can you shed any lights? I,
3: uh, no, but I, I I do ask questions, and uh, and uh, I hope you'll continue to inquire about it because uh, there must be some legal explanation of of what it's what it's they're doing, and who's who who are the shareholders, and what are or you know what, what exactly are they doing with your uh, your country's name as a trademark, and just like. What are the legal implications
0: of it? Well, exactly. If we are a corporation, then we are not uh, we are not citizens. We are chattel, like office furniture. We are yes. we are property, and uh, the the uh, you know the law of the land, or the the let's say for example the the uh, the, the Constitution, the Canadian Constitution, formerly the BNA Act, is nothing, or the B the British North America Act, is nothing more than a commercial document. So mm-hmm. the implications are huge if. In fact it's true cecil, but and I've done shows on it in the past, and i'll and i'll uh, uh I, I appreciate you you reminding me I'll, we'll do another one on it well, thank you. great to hear from you in upstate New York. We love you, thank you Cecil Bye. all right let's say hello next to uh we've got Dave. Dave, welcome to the conspiracy show. How are you hi is that uh richard it's It's Richard indeed oh,
2: I had a lot of static there. I thought I might have lost you hey, uh, good to talk to you again um I had some questions uh, about uh, Eleanor White to see, but before you did that, I, um, I missed the first five minutes of the show and I uh, was surprised to see Sean David Morton uh, back on after last week. He couldn't make it. Did he explain what happened?
0: Yeah, he had an emergency um, with a client and oh, okay. uh, he ducked out of the he was very apologetic and uh, but you know what uh, it's live radio and i ended up having a great hour of uh, of open lines with with people so i you know what uh, after 20 years in the business it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't yeah, bother no me so
2: because no, i was wondering cuz i used to listen to him on uh, coast to coast all the time mm-hmm. with art and i think he was only on once with uh, george and i haven't heard him back since i tried to contact him in 08 left some messages and never heard from him so i was wondering uh, if this was another nefarious uh, thing that happened to him that he couldn't make
0: no, he just um, you know just one of those rare instances when it, where a guest uh, you know isn't where he's supposed to be, but uh, we soldiered on and, and it was great uh, talking to him.
2: It probably wasn't coincidence, but it was good to hear him on tonight. Anyway, what I wanted to ask you about was um, uh, Eleanor White that uh, you had mentioned to me uh, a long time ago when you hosted uh, Coast to Coast there that one time. That uh, how um, do you have anything ar- archived that uh, I would be able to listen to those programs?
0: Uh, boy, we're going back. I, I don't think Eleanor has been with me uh, since I've been over here uh, at this particular station here at our flagship station, AM 740 in Toronto. Oh, okay. uh, I'd have to go back quite a few years. I would. You might find something online. It's hard to say.
2: Yeah, I have um, found some stuff uh, that, that she's done, but nothing that uh, she might have discussed on your show. Well, or, uh, you know, whatever, uh, if you, if you on uh, the show you got right now,
0: no. But, if you Google Eleanor online, uh, those uh, who are um, not familiar with Eleanor. Eleanor White's work. She's very active in uh, the field of electronic harassment, or helping victims uh, who, who feel they are being targeted for electronic harassment. Eleanor herself believes that she's been a lifelong victim um, for harassment. So uh, the best thing I would say is, is Google her online, and yeah. uh, because her website is, is not at the tip of my on the tip of my tongue, and she may have uh, she may have archived one of my shows, maybe uh, uh, you know. Maybe there's an MP3 of one of my old shows on her site.
2: Well, her what she talks about actually may tie in. Uh, you said it was Philip Marshall, right?
0: Who just uh, who just died? Yes.
2: Yeah. Now what? It, you never know these days. From what I've investigated as a TI myself, a targeted individual, is that that is flipped the coin on whether it uh, he could have been bumped off because of what he was trying to expose. But the, the other aspect of it is what I call I call it stop, an acronym for strategic targeting of persons. It's uh, gang stalking. It's also referred to, but the way they go after you, they may have put so much pressure on him that he figured the only way out of this was to do what he did. But like I say, it's flipped the coin. You just don't know whether uh, he did it because he was pressured, or whether they bumped him off and they're blaming him.
0: Uh, yeah, we'll probably never know. I, I believe uh, you know the authorities um, at his home near Santa Barbara are conducting you know toxicology. They want to find out whether the children were drugged, and uh, they were supposedly. Uh, asleep when they were uh, so I, not that that's much comfort, but at least yeah, you know. A shame. And, and,
2: okay, yeah. one quick question before I go: is, How did you get onto C2C? I It was great to hear you there. I'm glad I picked you up uh, from the show to be able to tune into your program here. But how did it come about that you got to uh, host C2, uh, Coast to Coast?
0: Just got a call from uh, the. Um uh, I guess he was the vice president of uh, of talk at uh, Premier Radio Networks, and uh, you know it was a great honor. Got, it felt like being called up to the Yankees. And uh, George happened to be off on a Friday. I guess he was, I believe he was celebrating his daughter's his daughter's birthday. So.
2: Yeah, well, you, you do a great job, Richard. You're one of the best I've listened to, other than George Knapp on the host on Coast to Coast. I mean, you do a fantastic job. And I appreciate it, Dave. Every week.
0: Thank you, my friend.
2: You're welcome. Good Have talking good to
0: one. you. All right. Bye-bye. Something else I want to uh, talk to you about. And, uh, you know, this is something that I've mentioned on this program months and months and months ago, maybe even more than a year ago. And others, of course, in this field have talked about it as well. And now it's just sort of percolating into the mainstream media. And you've probably known about this for some time too. But uh, these, I'm talking about these... Recently uncovered memos from the uh, Justice Department in the US, a white paper, which is arguing that the government now has the right to kill any American citizen the government believes is affiliated with a terrorist organization. And, uh, found a wonderful, um, uh, article here. There's a, um, a news, an, an e-newsletter that I subscribe to called Wealth Daily. And the uh, article is written by Jeff Siegel. And, uh, he describes Uh, or he asks, you know, how, ask yourself, how is this legal? But first, let this soak in for a moment. Say it out loud. The government now has the right to kill any American citizen the government believes is affiliated with a terrorist organization. According to attorney, uh, Jamil Jaffer, some of the white paper's key legal arguments don't stand up to even cursory review. As it emits crucial language from Matthew v. Eldridge, a case in which the Supreme Court held that the question of what, pro, uh, what process must be afforded to a person before he's deprived of life or liberty must take into account the risk of erroneous deprivation of such interests through procedures used and the value of additional procedural safeguards. These are, these are safeguards all outlined in the Fifth Amendment, right? Due process. Jaffer went on to say, this is a chilling document. Basically, it argues the government has the right to carry out the extrajudicial killing of Americans. It recognizes some limits on the authority it sets out, but the limits are elastic and vaguely defined, and it's easy to see how they could be manipulated. In fact, I've heard uh, uh, Judge Andrew Napolitano um, say that after looking at the 16-page white paper, it is so vague it would allow the president to sign off in, on killing a U.S. citizen on U.S. soil. Of course, now they're using drone, drones uh, in places like Pakistan and, and Yemen and so forth. But the document is so vague, we could see U.S. citizens targeted on U.S. soil for assassination, execution. Imagine the president, the president having the power uh, to, to be judge, jury, and executioner. This is a power that is normally found with king's dictators. This, to me, is beyond concerning, as some uh, uh, people at CNN and others have described it. It's not concerning. It's horrific. It's absolutely horrific. But even more shocking is, you have to start asking yourself, are you a terrorist? Could you end up on that list? Could I end up on that list? You never know. You think, think I'm kidding, writes Jeffrey Siegel at Wealth Daily. Let's review how some lawmakers have already defined Americans as terrorists. August 2011, Vice President Joe Biden equates Tea Party supporters with terrorists. August uh, August 2011, Justice Department and FBI identify those having more than a seven-day supply of stored food as being potential terrorist threats. January 2011, Department of Homeland Security suggests those who pay cash for a hotel room might be terrorists. March 2009, law enforcement report from the Missouri Information Analysis Center labels Ron Paul supporters, libertarians, and people sharing movies about the Federal Reserve as domestic terrorists. All right, back next week, we'll replay the Phil Marshall interview, the late Phil Marshall interview from September 2012, and Jim DiEugenio on destiny betrayed JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison case. Tim Spreen, thank you. Thank you all for listening. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark speak in the light, what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.